Hello, my friends. If you like this video, don't forget to subscribe and don't forget to hit that like button and share the video with your friends. Please support the channel if you can. I appreciate all the support. Uh, you can become a Patreon for as little as $1 a month, or you can make a one-off donation via PayPal if you wish. All the links are in the description box below. Thank you. In Egypt, we've got plenty of lists of kings, which are about 70-80% accurate with modern chronology of modern Egyptologists. But you know, all of those, most of those lists of kings, but most, let's say, evidence-based, like the Palermo Stone, the Manetho's King's List, or the Turin's King's List, which are most reliable and which are in about 70-80% to 80 consistent with, with what we know about dynastic Egypt, all of those texts are telling us that the history is older, that before the first pharaoh there were other pharaohs, mm -hmm. that the history of Egypt is about 36,000 years before, you know, the first Egyptians that we know. So, you know, again, the same case with the other history. Hello, people. This is Mind the Shift, and I am Anders. It is time for yet another conversation about our distant past and lost civilizations. I am delighted to introduce you to a brilliant young man living in Poland, Alexander Cieszkiewicz. Welcome to the show, Alexander. Thanks for having me on, me on and welcome everyone. Yeah, great. Uh, I hope I got your, your name right there. Chess yes, you nailed it, okay. really. When it comes Excellent. to, you know, uh, over the border speakers, so everyone is getting it bad, but you actually got yeah. it right. Well, I don't speak Polish, but I'm, I'm pretty interested in languages. I, 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 Polish is a, is a challenge, but it's, it's cool. Mm -hmm. I think it's a cool language. A lot of sh sounds in there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so... Um, you you have you have written this book called Déjà Vu or Déjà Vu if we want to do it in French the original pronunciation there Déjà Vu has everything already been it's it's a great book and it's a comprehensive book and I just read it and it's uh, it kind of contains everything you you need to know basically about uh, our possible distant past our lost past and. Um, you um you you wrote it at the age of 17 which is mm -hmm. pretty impressive actually and uh, i mean it was just a few years ago i suppose mm -hmm. yes i'm 20 right now okay. i wrote it at the age of 17 then because of the legal stuff i needed to wait until 18 to publish it but i can say that about 80 85% of the book was actually written at the age of 17 you know only some yeah, Some things added at the age just be at the age of eighteen, just before publishing, and then at the age of nineteen, a year later, I translated it myself into English. So that was also a huge challenge for me. But I, I think I managed it to yeah. do it without you know pounds of mistakes. You know, maybe a few, but it can be read very easily because. I read hundreds of books in English, actually, not only in Polish. And I have to say that after, you know, the final translation, it was 
in, it was in my opinion really nice to read not you know like it, it didn't feel that it was that much translated no i think it was um, it was an easy read and and uh, an interesting read um, i i'm i've been interested in this topic for a long time so i recognized most of it i got some new information which mm-hmm. was fascinating of course in such a big book but you you, you kind of covered it all and uh, uh, yeah, it's really impressive. I would not have been able to write a book like that when I was seventeen. I can tell you that right off, right directly here. But anyway, it's it's fascinating, and I, I mean, considering your age and and all that, I wouldn't bet against that we will be hearing more from you about who we are and where we come from and all that. So, uh, I hope you 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 will write more books on this topic. Mm-hmm. Sure I want even to publish at least one this year, but I will start with Polish and then maybe the yeah. next year in English because, you know, it takes a lot of time and stuff. So, but I think that I will manage to publish at least one more book this year. Yeah. Okay. Fantastic. I want to say one more thing about that. Your age, I'm not going to linger on your age or anything because I, I think, I mean, philosophically speaking, this is a bit of a going on on a tangent here, but uh, I, I think that you are living proof that this, I mean, insights and knowledge has very little to do about with age and experience. Mm-hmm. It is a little bit like, I mean, all the knowledge is is there out in the in the field, if you will, or in the uh, uh, the collective consciousness, and people are more or less good at tapping into that and and accessing that. So it's it's a little bit like. I don't know if you would agree with that, but it's a little bit like people. Some people are good at remembering what we actually, as a as a collective, have been experiencing, and other uh, others are are, are are worse at that and uh, and are not able to do that. Would you agree? Mm-hmm. Yes, I agree with that. But you know, this my first book was actually more from a materialistic side, not from that spiritual. Maybe the ending about the cyclical time was more philosophical. But when it comes to the entirety of my book, it started because I was actually reading a lot. I was learning a lot. My mother used to be a historian, so I had some sources already at home. So it wasn't only about you know spiritual that I tapped into some field of consciousness. This book actually was more from a materialistic like evidence-based perspective from like research from you know intellectual stuff not from spiritual subconscious and things like that but I also of course use that I use maybe even more of that right now but as I mentioned the first book was was you know low level when it comes not exploring the vast universe of consciousness spirituality and stuff like that i i understand what you're saying and i and i agree but but i mean i think even ordinary quote-unquote ordinary knowledge mm-hmm. is also some kind of you know when you get these aha moments these mm-hmm. uh, epiphanies it is always like i mean there is this expression it struck me that and i think it's that is the way it works that it's like almost like a remembrance like uh when you listen to a lecture, for instance, and you suddenly realize, oh, what this person is saying is true. I, how could I not have thought about this before? It's like an insight, and I think it, it reminds it's 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 similar to a, a remembrance, a memory in a way. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, I'm just going off on a philosophical tangent here, but mm-hmm. I kind of find it fascinating. So let's let's dive into your your book and the details and uh, the the topic here. Fascinating one. Right off the bat, as the Americans say, 
we think, or most of us living today here, think that our civilization is at a uniquely high place. But is it, or is this, in fact, as you say in the book, a déjà vu? Mm -hmm. Yes, it all comes to our understanding of our history and to our historical narrative, because nowadays the dominant view on our history is that it is a constant progress, maybe in some cases linear, maybe in some cases even exponential, and that we are getting better, better, getting more and more. No, almost like a consumptionist and materialism when it comes to everyday living. This is the dominant view that we started as primitive hominids, evolved into some caveman human beings, then into first settlements, first civilizations, Middle Ages, and uh, until nowadays to all of that technology. But actually throughout the history, there used to be more and different points of view on our history, because as I mentioned, nowadays it is a huge evolution, but there was also mostly mostly popularized during the Middle Ages view on the fall that was totally reversed, that we started in a high place, high vibrational, high spiritual place in the Garden of Eden, and then humanity fell down, and we are constantly devolving and only our inner self, our spirituality can help us, maybe in some afterlife, according to a Christian point of view. So it was a completely reversed point of view. And, you know, depending on how we understand history, we behave in that way. And in the Middle Ages, there was no progress until, of course, the Renaissance, but there was no progress. We weren't that much into personality, individualism, or just, you know, treating everything collectively, making no progress, just living and just focusing on our religious and maybe in, to some extent spiritual stuff. But, you know, we're not making pro that much progress in the physical material realm because we thought that, you know, it is all the fault and even maybe it was our fault that we fallen from the Garden of Eden, so we shouldn't, you know, invest that much time into that. So it was in the reverse. But also in the ancient times, there was a even different point of view on our history, which was about the cycles of time, about the cyclical ages, that it isn't that, you know, once there was a fall and we are constantly falling, it wasn't about, you know, constantly upgrading like nowadays, but it was that at one point in our history, there is a golden age, everything is nice, and at the other, it is very low, it is a dark age, and that it all constantly goes through the cycles, that there are different ages, and stuff like that. And this point of view was very popular in ancient Greece, in ancient India, and this point of view was, I think it was neutral, because the point of view of the fall was negative to some extent. Maybe it helped that we should focus only on spirituality because material realm is, you know, obsolete and we should, you know, forget it. But it wasn't also that that optimistic, maybe overly optimistic to some extent when it comes to modern view that we will be better, better, etc. But, you know, it creates, I think, this modern view, this harmony, because we are at the point that, oh no, maybe we are constantly progressing, but maybe there are other problems. Maybe we will go extinct, maybe there will be, you know, some catastrophe, maybe, you know. When we are in this harmony, we are attracting, I think, even, you know, in a pure material, like, mind stuff, we are attracting opposite views. So we are saying, oh, everything is better, better, but we have apocalyptic visions. 
And when it comes to this point of view of cycles of time of our ancient ancestors, it was neutral. Okay, there will be maybe darker age, there will be a better age, but we always have hope for the future because at some point, maybe not during our lifetimes, but maybe after us, there will be again the golden age. So that won't be that bad. So yeah. this, as I mentioned, everything depends on our point of view. And I think that it dictates how we are thinking and how we are behaving. So I think that, you know, the modern point of view of constant progress has its downsides. And I think that the cycles of time is neutral. That's why deja vu has everything already been, because what if a similar situation happened in the distant past? What if, you know, civilizations, falls and downs of them and you know plenty of other stuff what if all of that is cyclical and at the end of the book after you know analysis of our maybe lost history i am analyzing the true cases of repeated history that may point that our history is really repeated and it may be in accordance to maybe metaphysical maybe cosmic cycles concerned with a special wobble of our planet you're referring to the uh... The, the the procession of the equinoxes, mm -hmm. yes. And and what about the? I mean, there are these uh, yuga cycles in the mm -hmm. Vedic Hindu Vedic tradition, and there are astrological cycles. You've studied mm -hmm. them both, I know. What what do you think about those? Are they the same thing, or are is one more plausible than the other, or how do you see these cycles? If if we are in mm -hmm. These are similar things, actually. And when it comes to yugas, I will start with comparisons to the Greek ages, because there are plenty of similarities. And I think that, you know, both the Greek ages and the yuga cycles of the Hindu thought are the same thing, but, you know, distorted over the centuries. Because basically in the yuga cycles of time, there are four four ages. Each age is twice as long as the previous one. And we start with the dark age of Kali Yuga, which is mostly about material stuff. And you know, if we have four ages, and you know, one is the dark age, then it is the half age, you know, half good, half bad, then there is like three fourths, and there is like pure spirituality. So in the Hindu thought, there is a nice analogy that it is like a cattle that stands on all the four legs, then it is like standing on three legs, then it is standing on two, and then it is finally falling with one yeah. leg. So this is a great metaphor for those ages. And actually this cattle, this let's say bull or a cow, I don't remember if it was bull or a cow, but it was, I remember cattle. Uh, this uh, cattle represents our overall spirituality, but not spirituality in the modern sense, but righteousness. You know, what is right? like the ancient Greek philosophical concept of necessity, you know, that there are some things that are just right in themselves. So, you know, in natural, the golden... Natural law, some people talk about natural yes. law, is that yes. the same thing? Mm -hmm. Yes, a similar stuff. But, you know, the righteousness, you know, what is right at the moment, and this, you know, it is rooted also, but a little bit distorted with the caste system, that if you're in a particular caste, it is right for you to do that which is in that caste. If you know, if you like Ikigai, you know, if you are good at something, if it is beneficial to others, this is your, uh, this is this righteousness, this necessity, what you have to do. So, but this is on the collective level, on the level of all humanity during a particular age. 
And it mentions that, you know, during this golden age, which is called Krita or Satya Yuga, there is full righteousness. Everyone is to such an extent, let's say, intuitive. Everyone knows what to do, that almost 100% is righteousness. You know, humanity is spiritual, there is the golden age. Then there is the third era, and the cattle stands on three of four legs, which is in three fourths, and is called the Treta Yuga, the age of wisdom of knowledge also. So it is like a cool age, but, you know, not that ideal perfect. Then there is the Dvapara Yuga, which is the half of everything, and is called also the age of energy. I don't know, maybe because everything is going smoothly fast, but this is the age of energy. And then at the end is the Kali Yuga, which is the dark age, the age of materialism. And interestingly, we have these Yuga cycles described in, let's say, those texts that are most ancient, like Mahabharata. In Mahabharata, Yugas are very, very, I think, nicely described. And that description from Mahabharata, which is one of the oldest ancient texts in the world that we know, in this description is very, let's say, similar to a modern description. But I will come to that in a moment. Okay. And there is a description of those ages. But then there is this Kali Yuga, the age of matter. And there is a mention that people will be so absorbed into matter, they will like be cut off of the source of their spirituality that they will be like animals to some extent. And there is mentioned that the that there will be, of course, a few saints or sages that will be more like psychic, more spiritual, but most people will be like immense, immersed in this material world, also called Maya, the illusion in the other Hindu texts. So it is interesting because nowadays, you know, with all of this scientism, with all of this scientific materialism, that only matter and its interactions exist and everything else is woo-woo, with all of the atheism, I think that modern world is similar to this description of the Kali Yuga, the Dark Age of Matter, because there is no mention that, you know, it will be like an awful age or something like that, but just, but that just people will be like immersed in this material world and that they will forget their divine mm. spiritual <laughs> origins. origins. <clears throat> but, yes. And, and it would lead, and it will lead to to the fall of humanity also? Is that in the... No, this is like cyclical. In yeah, this, but I, I mean, a, mm -hmm. a fall, a periodical fall, one one of many falls, <laughs> mm -hmm. will. Yes, it is, you know... And the according, universe... to, sorry, according to your calculations, uh -huh. is, 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 is this period where we live, when we live, that we are living in now, is that uh, corresponding to, to... Would it correspond very well to, to a Kali Yuga or... Would it be some other? I will start with place. the fall and then calculations because calculations are very, you know, very sophisticated. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. But also to some extent easy, easy to understand. But let's start with you mentioned the fall. You know, we say that the universe just is is neutral. Let's say so. According to the Hindu thought, it isn't bad. It is just you know how the nature works. You know, even without humans, with all of our planet, with all things natural, we have some catastrophes we used to have throughout history catastrophes that were natural and you know sometimes being having this dark period is beneficial 
to actually, you know, creating a new life, creating something new, a new chapter. So the reason they mentioned that it will be that bad, but it is a, let's say, fall of humanity from spirituality to materialism. But that isn't the like catastrophe, apocalypse, the end of the world. But because when it comes to those few guys, it goes then in reverse. So we have this half age of Dvapara, then we have this dark age of Kali Yuga divorce, and then it comes back to Dvapara. So, mm. you know, it is like a down, but we are going up again. So, it so, so maybe the fall in quote unquote fall could mm -hmm. be it, it, theoretically that a period which is a little bit like it has been the last two or 300 years, very materialistic, very... Uh, scientists uh, scientific and uh, natural scientific and and where we have wars and we we have a lot of people who want to just make money and all that but i mean we haven't obviously perished completely we haven't gone extinct but i mean we're still here but it's i mean could that also be defined as a kind of a fall perhaps in that description in the mahabharata description of it Yes, in Mahabharata, there is a mention that Kali Yuga started on the 18th, it is an exact date, 18th of February, 3102 BC, yeah. which interestingly corresponds to the creation of the first civilizations, yeah. like first civilizations, you know, the unification of Upper and Lower Egypt, you know, first civilizations of Harappa and Mohenjo-daro in India, or, you know, this, like, let's say, golden era of the Sumerian culture. So we mentioned that, you know, first civilization started about 3,100 3, years BC. And it's interesting because those cultures started and the Kali Yuga began with a flood. So it is a post-Dalevan world. And it may be that, you know, why those civilizations appeared, because maybe there was another cataclysm. Because in my book, I I actually say that I think that we have the most evidence for some kind of a catastrophe, great flood at the end of the last ice age with Plato's description of Atlantis 9,600 years BC. But what if there was another kind, maybe like some milder cataclysm yeah. before the beginnings of the first civilizations? It may be possible or maybe there was no cataclysm, but this date 3,100 years plus minus was just, you know, some metaphysical cycle that, you know, humans just automatically, you know, got into this cycle and unconsciously started building civilizations. Yeah. It may be like that as well. Mm. But there are also other calculations of those cycles because I think that these yoga cycles from Mahabharata concern a bigger cycle because the yugas are in divine years and in human years and in human years they last for a few thousand years like just normal cycles like similar to the astrological cycles every astrological age every 2160 years but there are also bigger cycles which span for millions of years so when it comes to this date from for Mahaprata, it is like it it is with those first civilizations, but it maybe can't be with modern times. But there are a few other, you know, calculations when it comes to those cycles. It isn't the only one. There are, you know, plenty of different calculations in the Hindu thought. And one interesting is from a yogi, Sri Yukteswar, who was like a teacher, a guru of Paramahansa Yogananda from the autobiography of a yogi. And according to Sri Yukteswar, 
the Kali Yuga was actually during the Middle Ages. And his description of Kali Yuga is, I think, convincing to some extent. And, you know, before every other Yuga, there is a, like, period, you know, like, cease of fire period that there is no Yuga, you know, 100, 200 years, because everything needs to get adjusted. So according to Sri Yuktasva, the Kali Yuga ended in 1900. So, you know, 124 years ago. Mm. And it is very interesting because after Kali Yuga, after the Dark Age, and we know that if we take into account, let's say, 300 years of intermediary period, so we may say that, you know, the scientific revolution was actually beneficial to some extent. And we were in the Dark Ages during the Middle Ages, you know, after the fall of ancient Rome and ancient Greece, then during the Middle Ages, we were in the Dark Age. We can interpret like that. And it's very interesting because now we may be in this, you know, Dvapara age, as I mentioned, age of energy. And, you know, energy, you know, consumption, creation and everything when it comes to energy made a boom during the 1900s and nowadays is constantly evolving. So we may actually come back from this dark age of Kali Yuga and up into the other age and this you know have spirituality have materialism which is similar also to nowadays that we have at the one hand atheists and scientific materialism and at the other hand we've got all of those new spiritual movement so it may be like that or we may still be in the dark age of kali or we may say that there is a conspiracy theory that someone wants us still in those dark ages and that's why he or them for on us all of that materialism and actually disconnects us from the spiritual so it may be like which that. we would have entered if we if it would have happened naturally so to speak mm-hmm. maybe okay, yes so, maybe yes but still it's it, it's still cyclical cyclical uh, uh whichever interpretation we have of, of the mahabharata mm-hmm. or the other text that you're referring to here uh and and or and it's of course Speaking of déjà vu, it's it's not that the exact same occurrences happen once again, of course, but it's more like a spiral, perhaps. That things mm-hmm. happen in in a similar way, but it's I mean, mm-hmm. different people, different time, different environments, and all that. So it's it's more like to see like a spiral. But anyway, in this day and age, we, as I said, have this, and and it's, as you said, <laughs> of course, also we have this idea that it's uh, more or less a continuous, upgoing path of ever more. Um, an ever more advanced civilization. It's a linear evolution. So when do you think this idea started? When did, when did that begin? Was that in the 1800s or the 1700s? Or would, since when have we... Because mm-hmm. you, you mentioned that in the Middle Ages or f- for several hundred years, nothing much happened. So people thought that, well, we're probably going down the drain because uh, we, we used to be in a golden age. But I mean, since as long as I've been on this planet... There has been this idea that it's a constant uh, upgoing or at least a forward going trajectory. Uh, mm-hmm. So when did when when did we start thinking like that? I think it started exactly with the development of science. You know, maybe not 1800s, but maybe it started a bit, you know, after or during the Renaissance, and then it kick-started everything, you know. We started exploring all the world. We started to be confident, you know, that we can have more, that we can explore more, that we can exploit also more when it comes to lands, you know, all of the people that were exploited, natives uh, from all over the world, actually. So it started then, 
but I think that it gained like an additional exponential momentum during, as we mentioned, 1900s, during this, let's say, energetic age of the Vapara Yuga, maybe, because, you know, with all of, because there was a technological boom. And with that, and still nowadays, we have even bigger technological booms, like in the early 2000s, in the, you know, late 1990s, stuff like that. So it gave us more and more confidence. And I think that, you know, we are getting more and more into that, you know, maybe like into karma, into, you know, some like, maybe to some extent false confidence and it creates more and more disharmony. So it may be, as I mentioned, connected with this transition from the Middle Ages, let's say 1400s up until the 1800s, you know, those, those four or 300 years of the transition period during which it started, you know, we started to be more confident about our, you know, going upward and it will be really connected that the Kali Yuga was actually during the Middle Ages to some extent, because as I mentioned, there is this, let's say, Dvapara age, this half age, then there is the worst age, and then it goes back, like it bounces again. And it would be, you know, that the peak was actually during the Middle Ages, because there was the downfall, fall of humanity. And then we started actually going exponentially into exploring, exploiting, you know, all of the discoveries, age of discoveries. So it may be that about during the times of the renaissance it was this peak so nowadays we may go back into this age of energy dvapara yuga so it may be i think like that alexander isn't it in a way a bit outrageous that we don't know where we come from i mean that should be our birthright one would think and isn't it also a bit strange that so many people don't seem to care why, why is that you think i think that as i mentioned that Nowadays, we are more and more into those into that progress, you know, everything's progressing, we're going forward, forward, but we are not balanced. And as you mentioned, we don't, most people don't even care about the origins, about the past, you know, we, we destroyed plenty of antiques, you know, plenty of monuments, plenty of uh, stuff from the past. So it may be, as I mentioned, this disharmony created with, you know, like constant desire and wanting for progress. So many people may be in that state. And I think that's why we have those balancing thoughts that are on the other side of the, let's say, stick that are apocalyptic, because we've got two sides of the stick. One is, you know, constant progress, desire for more and more, you know, creation, creation, going upward, upward. But then at the same time, and even within the same communities, same people, we have this apocalyptic vision yeah. that- It's fascinating. Going... I, I meet these people all the time on both ends of the stick, as you say. Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. So I think that this desire, this, you know, because, you know, it's very nice for the ego that we are making constant progress. And it is very comfortable that I don't need to care about my past. I don't need to care about the mistakes I made because there will be new things, new things, new things. And then, you know, even for, from my own, let's say, like inner spiritual journey, I see that sometimes, you know, we because of that desire for more and more, because, you know, all the world around us is go is coming for more, is telling us that, you, that there will be better, better, don't worry, and stuff like that. And then we are actually leaving behind things that are unfinished. 
I used to do that a lot in my past. Now I'm more conscious about it. But you know, if we leave things unfinished, like our history, like maybe even some recent history, like some problems that we haven't resolved, but you know, ah, uh, forget about them. Let's go. Let's yeah. go more and more. So then the problem starts. Come back. Appear. Yes, exactly. And that's problematic. And mm -hmm. that may lead to that unbalance and those apocalyptic things, because now we are going more and more. But let's say that 50 of our percent is more and 50 of our of our 50 percent half of our, our lives are those problems and those things that are unfinished. And they are starting to be like that karma, like a bag that mm. is attached to us or like some weight that is attached to us that we cannot, you know, just go away. <laughs> we cannot do that. So that starts that I think that yeah, starts yeah. problem. And it is, I think, you know, the law of karma, action, reaction, I think it is all about that, that we are then constantly in that state that we, you know, want to go further, but, you know, we haven't left the things behind us finished mm -hmm. and now and i i used to have a similar situation in my life i can say from my own experience because i'm also a little bit spiritual that you know when it comes to those unfinished things they are making us go again into those cycles to end those things but we want more we are ignoring that and we are, we are constantly mm -hmm. constantly repeating the same stuff and they they accumulate to such an extent mm -hmm. that then finally they may fall and they may destroy almost everything in our mm -hmm. lives, literally, you know, mentally, energetically, maybe spiritually. That is sad to happen, but, you know, we need to finish things that we started. And, you know, with modern world, you know, we are, we've got waste everywhere. You know, when I was like a few years ago, I visited like Rome or London and, you know, there was waste before COVID. There was waste everywhere. You know, we are just, you know, throwing things and wanting to more and more to go into the future, to progress, to evolve. But we are not, you know, we are not solving the past problems. We are not like cleaning the old stuff from yeah. our own lives even or <laughs> our, from our own surroundings. And that is problematic and that may lead to a fall. That's why we've got so many apocalyptic visions. Well, I that's one advantage of being being a bit older because I know what, what it looked like in the 70s and the 80s. <laughs> and I can tell you it was worse when it comes to environment and, and, and waste and all that. So, but that's that's a detail. Anyway, I... Uh, I interpret what you say as a collective psychoanalysis is needed here, maybe on the mm -hmm. basis of the seven hermetic principles or something like that. I think that, you know, as I mentioned, we are in constant desire for more and more. You know, we are like hiring, hiring. We even mentioned that modern world world is all about hiring, hiring. But what we need is just, you know, sit for a moment, stay for a moment, like be here and now, not to go forward, future, future and stuff like that, but no. be here now. And, you know, it is, like as you mentioned, psychoanalysis, psychoanalysis, it is like a meditation without meditating that yeah. we stay here and we like even feel that we have those problems because they are all the time in our subconscious. But now we can actually be aware of them. And we have those problems like I maybe have some mess here, some, you know, papers here, unfinished writings and stuff like that. And by just sitting here, we can see that, oh, here's a problem. And even by sitting here, we see that we, within this hurry, with all this hurrying, we, 
used to maybe think that, you know, those problems were either unnecessary or they were impossible to be solved. But when we sit right here, as you mentioned, psychoanalysis, as we start to see all those problems, we see that either they are easy to make or that they are important. The things that we thought were unnecessary accumulated to such an extent that changing them, solving them will change the entire lives of us. So mm-hmm. I, I feel personally that it is the case like that. Yeah. So Alex, how did your deep interest in these questions about our uh, ancient past begin? How did it all start for you? It's very interesting. And, you know, since a very early childhood, as I mentioned, my mother used to be a historian. So I had, you know, plenty of books, stuff like that. And as my mother was a historian, so she taught me how to read and write at a very early age. So I went to like preschool, like some kind of kindergarten, and I already knew even quickly how to read and write. So it was an advantage to me. And as I mentioned, I have plenty of sources. Also, I had plenty of time because I didn't go much to the kindergarten before school. You know, I was just with my mother. I was like, I was living in a huge freedom. So I, you know, as I mentioned, sit here and now and just, you know, all the problems and all the things to make are appearing to you, are you are becoming aware of them. So from a very, very early age, I was interested in the entire universe, actually. I was watching documentaries, you know, so, some things were understandable, maybe some things not, but you know, I was just watching, skimming through those documentaries, skimming through all of the textbooks, books that I found at home, you know, just for fun. I was like collecting uh, collecting minerals, collecting rocks and being interested, you know, holistically in the universe, the earth, the history, you know, in those areas mostly. And then, you know, as... As my life progressed, you know, the school and, you know, at school, everything was not interesting to me, actually. Too simple, (laughs) too basic. Maybe not too basic, but, you know, it was, everything was ordered, you Mm. know, at those early ages, we know everything about every topic. It is like that, you know, there was no place for an imagination, you know, because when I was like free at home and I was, you know, watching every, let's say, documentary I wanted or skimming through any book I wanted that was at home, you know, I had a freedom. I could do whatever I wanted with that. I could, you know, speculate maybe Atlantis existed, maybe not, maybe the core of the earth is like that or maybe not, you know, I was free. But then at school, you know, you are not that free. So I think that all of that diminished for many years to me up until the middle high school. Because in middle high school, I was in a situation when middle high school was to be eliminated. I was the last year of the middle high school in Poland at that time. And because of that, in order to get to high school, there were twice as much people. So it was very hard to get, you know, to a good school, whatever I wanted. But there was a solution because if you attended like a district, a voivodeship competition, which was of a very high level, if you get like high rank in that competition, you can go wherever you can, whenever you actually want, whenever you actually desire. So I attempted, of course, the historical competition because not only I had plenty of things at home, my mother used to be a historian, so it was helpful to me, but also I had a very strict teacher at at that time. It was when I was about, let's say, 15, maybe it started at 14, like between 14 and 16 years old. And it all started there because 
in order to you know participate and get a good place in that competition i needed to know the let's say entire history of let's say from the neolithic you know from this transition from hunter gatherers to first settlements through the the ancient civilizations up until the modern era so i was learning a lot from higher levels like from high school levels even extended high school levels or even some academic levels i was learning a lot i actually won that competition so it was nice to me but when i was learning for that competition you know i started again to have this inner imagination that started everything you know because everything was everything was mentioned and described so correctly you know it was it was like a journey that we know everything about our past from the very early age up until nowadays, with the exceptions of some specifics. You know, maybe we don't know about a particular ruler that ruled in that time, or maybe we don't know some minor details. But the picture was described correctly and there was no mystery to it. But, you know, I started questioning, is it really like that? You know, with all of the sources at home at that time, I also started reading more and more. I actually started at that time reading like a hundred books a year. So I started reading, reading. Wow. And also in English. So it's make me, it gave me an advantage. You know, in Poland, everyone for that contest was mostly reading in Polish. I was also reading in English. So I had different perspectives. And also having different perspectives showed me that, you know, we may be too arrogant to think as in those textbooks that we know almost everything about our history and there are only so minor details. And I found out, I I started to be very interested in a very interesting topic connected to you guys, as we were mentioning, because to the history of science, also to philosophy of science, but to history of scientific discoveries. And what I found was really astonishing, because nowadays we have this entire picture that is correct, and you are pseudoscientist if you say differently, but... You know, we thought like 300 years ago that the first civilizations were only Greece and Rome. And, you know, and 400 years ago, we thought that the humanity started six to 10,000 years ago with Adam and Eve. You know, our understanding just 300 years ago was completely different, was mm. very lacking. And what we, what if nowadays we're in a similar situation that we haven't found something and that there is more to our history. I started finding, finding more of those clues because, for instance, nowadays everyone says, oh, history started with Sumer, ancient Sumerian civilization, but we haven't discovered ancient Sumerian civilization up until 1840s. It was in 1840s that we started digging in the Middle East and rediscovering those civilizations which was less than 200 years ago, like 108 years ago. We didn't know almost anything about ancient Sumer, despite, of course, having mentions in ancient historians and scholars that were telling us that some civilizations existed there. Even in the Bible, we had a mention that Abraham came from the Sumerian city of Ur. So I was thinking, if less than 200 years ago, our picture was so incomplete and we found so many things, what if nowadays we're in a, in the same situation that, you know, maybe there is Atlantis somewhere that we haven't found yet. Yeah. And because we haven't found it yet, we say that 
it is only a fairy tale, it is imagination, it is fiction. And you know, and when everyone says to me like that, I say to them, you know, 108 years ago, we said that Sumeria is a fiction. Yeah, we you, said can, that... you can mention the, the dinosaurs exactly. or the tectonic plates that are moving mm -hmm. or that meteorites fall down from the sky. All of those things were, were just considered fairy tales 150, mm -hmm. 200 years ago, but now it's, it's standard science. Yes, exactly. And the same, you know, with Troy. And, and Troy, a, yeah, that's another good A good pearl, because, you know, Troy is in an epic work, which is, in my opinion, less reliable than the Plato's dialogues in which he mentions Atlantis. Mm. And, you're, and some skeptics are saying that, you know, Atlantis was imagined. But, you know, if we found Troy that was in, let's say, an imaginary epic story, why cannot we find in the future the Atlantis or some other lost civilizations? So it sparked my interest in all of those areas. And then during those ages between 14 and 16 years of age, I started reading tons of books. You know, then I think at 17, just before the publishing of my book, when I was writing, COVID hit. So I had plenty of time, you know, the e-lessons, e and I was like reading a, almost a book a day during those lessons because they were so boring. <laughs> and, you know, it Fantastic. all helped me. It actually yeah. was a, bit, a little bit... So one, of the, one of the few good things with, with COVID then, that people got time mm -hmm. to re read and write books. So, yeah. so what would you say, what, what, which are the most salient smoking guns, as it were, that tell us that advanced civilization is much older than we are told? Mm -hmm. So the first idea to sum up in one sentence was that throughout the history of science, we were taking back the roots of our civilizations many times by thousands of years and the roots of humans themselves by even hundreds of thousands of years. The other one is the existence of anatomically modern humans for about 200,000 years from genetic studies. So we know that about 200,000 years there happened a fusion within our chromosomes and we know that because other, let's say, our hominid ancestors had a pair of chromosomes more than us, so they fused, they connected, and that's how we happen to be. It's another story for how it happened and what it, how it is important for us. But when it comes to our history, imagine 200,000 years of our existence, and the civilization happened 5,000 years ago. So it is like 98% of all of our existence doing nothing, being just cavemen, you know, even considering the Neolithic Revolution 10,000 years BC plus minus that we started sedentary lifestyle, you know, it is 95-96% of doing nothing, not evolving. I think that, you know, we may have not evolved for, let's say, 20 or 30,000 years, but at some point, let's say 30,000 years ago, probably there existed at least some settlements or something like that, or like a civilization on the level of ancient Egypt or ancient Sumer. And it's very interesting because another, let's say, smoking gun is, we mentioned Troy and stuff like that, but I always wondered because we think that first civilizations nowadays within the scientific mainstream history, first civilizations, 
civilizations are Sumer, Egypt, and India. But all of those three civilizations considered by us to be the first mentioned that they are older. In ancient Sumer, we've got Sumerians kings list, which are telling us that before the flood, there were previous rulers, maybe divine rulers, and that the history takes us back to about 204,000 years ago, which, you know, 200,000 years ago would be even within the time frames of our civilizations. And before that, there are there is mentioned that there were some divine rulers, so maybe there were no humans or something like that. But we may say that, you know, to some extent, the Sumerian kings list may, may be talking about, you know, the older history, let's say 50,000 years BC. And the same in Egypt. In Egypt, we've got plenty of lists of kings, which are about 70-80% accurate with modern chronology of modern Egyptologists. But you know, all of those, most of those lists of kings, but most, let's say, evidence-based, like the Palermo Stone, the Manetho's King's List, or the Turin's King's List, which are most reliable and which are in about 70 to 80% consistent with, with what we know about dynastic Egypt, all of those texts are telling us that the history is older, that before the first pharaoh there were other pharaohs, mm -hmm. that the history of Egypt is about 36,000 years before, you know, the first Egyptians that we know. So, you know, again, the same case with the other history. And then we have India, and in India we've got so many, the Mahabharata, Duramayana, so many texts, but, you know, these are maybe epic texts, but we've got also some, you know, more, let's say, scholar texts, like the Silapatikaram of, you know, Tamil nation in India, that is even telling us that there were, you know, cities with hundreds of thousands of roads with them, that they were, you know, destroyed. There are even the dates that correspond to some extent with even Plato's Atlantis. And the next one, when it comes to not smoking guns physical, but to text, the last one is Plato's Atlantis. Because I made even more research than in my book, I will publish it in another book, about the Egyptian roots of Atlantis. And it is very probable that Plato's Atlantis has its Egyptian roots, which totally contradicts the opinion that, you know, Atlantis is imaginary because how Plato could, you know, made it fiction if it was an older source. So these are the texts and these are maybe some non-physical, like more scholar sources. But when it comes to mention megaliths and stuff like that, I think the Great Pyramid of Giza is the best example, maybe not of the, because it is controversial, is it older than the chronological Egyptians or not? It is controversial. Still, there are arguments for and against against it, but it is the best example of knowledge for ancestors, because the medieval Arab chroniclers were, during the Middle Ages, when they conquered the Egypt, found out that the local lore about the pyramids was that it was built before the flood by the king called Surit, Saurit, who was identified with the god of wisdom of ancient Egyptian thought, later in Greek Hermestris Magistus of Hermeticism, this is another story, but he built the pyramids about 300 years before the great flood because he had the dream that there will be a destruction and he built them in order to preserve knowledge. And in the pyramid we've got number pi, the golden ratio, number phi, we've got the measures of the earth, which are not coincidental because even in the high school, I made in English a, about, I've got, it's something here, an essay, like about 2000 words, something like that, and it was very controversial. My teacher wasn't happy about it, about the 
ancient, the prehistoric measures of the earth before the first measures of Eratosthenes of Cyrene. And there are so many clues that the measures of the earth were encoded in the Great Pyramid, were new before the first measures, as I mentioned, in ancient Alexandria. And it contradicts the knowledge of ancient Egyptians, because the ancient Egyptians from the papyri we know were very primitive. They had basic maps, they thought that the earth is flat and well, stuff like that. Well, not very primitive, but they were Bronze Age people, I, I suppose. Mm -hmm. Exactly. But, you know, if those people were like that, who built the pyramid? Someone with much higher knowledge. Yeah, it doesn't make so, sense. You're right. But some people, some some independent researchers, they say, I mean, Graham Hancock being among mm -hmm. them, think that the base of the Great Pyramid and the, and the three pyramids at, at Giza are very ancient, the... the the mm -hmm. subterranean maybe. chambers, for instance, and the, the inner parts, maybe, but but that the casing and the, the, the finishing of the yes. pyramid might have been done during d dynastic times. I mean, I don't know, but you, you've heard about that, uh, I'm sure. Yes, I mentioned a theory. Uh, there, it is a combination of lots of theories that the Giza pyramids were, let's say, from Atlantean times, like about 9,000, 10,000 years BC, which is correlated to astronomy and other things. But we have, for instance, some radiocarbon dating, which cannot date the stones themselves because they are inorganic, but they dated the cement the you know the concrete be uh, between the blocks mm -hmm. and you know they dated that because they found like some hairs in them you know and probably these hairs these pieces of hair these organic pieces are traced back to the people who made this concrete and stuff like that is but there is there mortar between the blocks actually yes i, I didn't think there was there is I mean, that's, in that's an indication cases. that's an indication that it is younger actually than Yes, there, it isn't everywhere, but there is in some places in the Great Pyramid and other pyramids, there is mortar between the blocks in some cases. In some cases, there is no mortar, of course. We speak here about the granite blocks between which you cannot insert even a knife or something yeah. like that, which are very precisely cut. That's why I think the Great Pyramid is one of the biggest smoking guns. <laughs> but, you know, again, this mortar, as you mentioned, may be from much more recent times. Mm -hmm. No, maybe no, there were some modifications made to the pyramid. We know, for instance, that there were casing stones that are not today. Mm -hmm. So maybe, you know, during the time of taking those casing stones, they, you know, made some uh, modifications yeah. to the pyramid. Yeah. That's why I, I think, you know, we are in the middle ground. We have arguments for that the pyramid is of the later origins, of the Egyptian origins, and we have arguments against. So it may be, for instance, mm -hmm. like Graham Hancock is telling us that the base or that some part of the pyramid was older. You know, it may mm -hmm. be the case, but you know, the knowledge is there. The mathematical precision exactly. is also there. Yeah. So I think that that's why it's a bigger smoking gun. And I found, you know, again, history of science, Isaac Newton, even great mathematicians like Pierre Simon de Laplace, the one of the first atheists of the current era, those people believe that the Eratosthenes of Cyrene, which is considered to be the first person to measure the Earth, wasn't the first. And I think that it is connected to the Great Pyramid and the pre-delivered knowledge about which, you know, plenty of peoples from all around the world are speaking. Yeah. Yeah, I, I went to Peru and Bolivia uh, 
a little over a year ago, and I've I've been to the pyramids as well, but I was very little. I was only seven years old, so I can't remember much. But I remember we went into the Great Pyramid and all that. But I, I can't I can't really recall having this this uh, you know um, great feeling of of uh, greatness and all that. But but in Peru, I was I was very very fascinated and impressed by some of the sites there not mainly Machu Picchu which is the most famous one because it's mm-hmm. it's a beautiful setting but the building the structures themselves are not as impressive yes, yes. as in Ollantaytambo or mm-hmm. Sacsayhuaman which is just outside of Cusco and Cusco itself central Cusco has some fantastic walls and, yes. and this ancient temple the Coricancha Coricancha and there are underground. It, it, it's also. just it's just incredible, and you you can see it's so it's so obvious that this was not made by the Inca, and they even said that when the conquistadors mm-hmm. asked them, "Did you build this?" No, 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 we found it because of course they did because because see on top there's one basic megalithic layer which is just incredibly well done and huge hard stone blocks, and then there's the the Inca work which is which has mortar and which contains of stone blocks that are very very much smaller and and not even i mean they're not they're not rectangular they're just mm-hmm. uh, crude yes. and then on top of that you have the the spanish work which is even even less um, you know meticulously done because it, it 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 crumbles it falls apart when when there's a an earthquake any earthquake the spanish stuff falls off first and then the inca stuff and then the the megalithic stuff always stays there never moves <laughs> doesn't matter how much the, the earth shakes so i i, this I is think another smoking gun I, yes. I think peru can might very well be you know those places may be incredibly old i mean they can be 100,000 years old i don't i don't know there are people speculating about that it's it's a, yes. you should you should really go there fascinating yes i should but you know it is a very interesting as you mentioned because i also came to the same conclusions that there are different you know eras of types of building of architecture like the pre-inc and those huge blocks which are polygonal sometimes even 10 12 angles which yeah. you know if you were like a primitive Inca, 24 angle there's, there's one block which has oh. 24 angles in in wow. country Yes, exactly. So if I were a primitive person, you know, I would just maybe make them oval or even rectangle or something like that, but I wouldn't mind doing, you know, all of the the stuff. Or maybe they were like there are some theories and there's is, there is some lore to that. They were melt into those places and to yeah. those things. So that would be maybe easier if if they, they had, had some like technology to things. maybe soften the stone in some yes. way. So maybe, maybe that could high, be... high, I said so this theory just mm-hmm. the other day, high voltage into the stone to make it softer in a way and then put it in place. Maybe, maybe, but, but you know, I because of the copyright stuff, I used like 20 or more illustrations images from old books from 1800s because there are no copyright oh yeah yeah. and they they were you know before all of that spanish buildings they were showing us what conquistadors actually saw when they went there and it is amazing because you know from those pictures you might think that you know it was an entire like megalithic civilization you know it wasn't just you know some huts and some like houses or some settlements like that but it is like an entire mosaic megalithic like civilization that again was maybe uncovered and maybe some people inhabited it later and i think that it is another smoking gun and we mentioned that 
the pyramid that some blocks without mortar may be older and maybe that mortar is uh, from much more recent times. And it may be because the same polygonal walls can be found beneath the pyramids of Giza in those, mo in those most, you know, the oldest and those most underground layers. We see that, in, I think in my book I showed or not, but, you know, it is the same. It, if if I took those pictures and you know give you no context and maybe no color, made them all gray, and I showed you, you would say, oh, they are all Incan. But one would be in those pre-Incan, those from Peru, and one would be from the third pyramid of Giza. The same style with the same knobs, and the same, for instance, can be found in Osirion, which is a temple a bit underground, which may provide us the information that it was older, you know, maybe when the ground was lower or something like that. And there we also have those megalithic, those polygonal walls, with incredible precision again and the same structures can be found also in the far east in china in yangshan in uh, i think in japan there are similar maybe not identical but also similar these things are found all over the world in greece there are similar stuff and lately researcher matthew lacroix I I was really shocked because there is the same style of architecture near Lake Van in Turkey. Oh. So again, oh, yeah, yeah, he's he's doing a film about that now. I yes, think. exactly. So I was again researchers. the same style of blocks. So that is another smoking gun. Yeah, yeah. You know this thing with carbon dating. It's really frustrating that you can't date uh, stone. <laughs> What, what do you think would happen if if somebody came up with that technique that uh, to to you know age date um, stone as well as organic material that would that would change everything wouldn't it but you know why there wouldn't be a technique i'm an optimist and you know i am for all of the potential of human capabilities but there wouldn't be that technique because you would date the stone itself which is i know yeah it could be billions of years so that doesn't no, that, exactly that doesn't so you know there is no technique for that you know but you might, why... you might be able to to date the um, the machining on the stone the yes, cuts you can, the, you can, the cuts for instance uh, Yes, you can do that to some extent, but it will be always inaccurate because, for instance, we mostly date those megaliths on the base of the like earth of the soil that is in the lowest part. So mm -hmm. we may assume that, you know, when they put this megalith in place, you know, this was the at that time the soil was from those times but you still you know maybe someone dug underground or maybe the stone was before putting it it wasn't put no. maybe the you no. know the soil was before that the same with you mentioned the cutting marks often we see some soil on the cutting marks and we may say that it is approximately from that era for instance gobeklitepe is a great example of megaliths that were dated accurately to some extent because well we don't know that we know we know when it was buried Exactly, because we know when it is buried. We, maybe it is much older, but yeah. we know when it was buried. And yeah. we've got very, very early ages, so yeah. it may be even older than that. But still, it is, I think, a good technique because we see the last human activity at that time. But again, we cannot say yeah. but when maybe exactly. Perhaps someone comes up with a, with a technique that kind of can be able to timestamp the the changing of the structure of the stone when you cut it, if you see what I mean. I mean, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm not a chemist or a, a physicist, but but there might be maybe, some changes maybe. to the structure, uh -huh. the, the molecular structure to this, of the stone when you cut it. 
And so you can maybe find something there. I don't know. Maybe it's possible. Maybe, maybe. But you know, when it comes to like casual things, it is very, very hard. Yeah, That's yeah. why, you know, the pyramids, the same thing. We've got the mortar, but we cannot date the stones. So yeah, yeah, yeah. That's but, the that, case. Yeah, to, to, to play or act as devil's advocate a little bit here. Another thing that is also a bit frustrating for us, I mean, people like you and me who <laughs> actually think that this is, it's obvious that there, there was something before the Young Gedrias cataclysm and all that. But uh, it is that, I mean, from time to time, standard archaeology, paleontologists and, and people like that, scientists, they find remnants of ancient humans, but it seems to be always skeletons, bodies, uh, remnants in primitive graves. Why, why haven't we found any graves that, that are, I mean, apparently uh, for people who have been living an advanced life or is mm -hmm. would, wouldn't that make wouldn't that even be detectable perhaps i don't know i'm just i've been thinking about that because they find bones from time to time actually speaking of how old homo sapiens is you mentioned the 200,000 uh, year time frame which is which is uh, correct of course but i know that they have in morocco found even mm -hmm. older, older remnants of homo sapiens that are might be 300,000 years old so anyway wh why don't we find these uh, advanced graves <laughs> Yes, it is all about you know what what doesn't disappear during that during such long periods of times because we think you know that all all the skeletons and all of that stuff will be still after hundreds of thousands of millions of years but actually when it comes to skeletons when it comes to you know things like that these are very rare actually because because matter decomposes very quickly yeah. and only we can have like we've got for instance examples of mammals that were found frozen and because they were frozen for about 10,000 years in Siberia we still have their blood and we still have their hair but you know these are very rare conditions you know what is a probability that you know when you die you will be immediately frozen and immediately frozen and you know they will unfroze you after uh, 10,000 years so these are the case when it comes to you know having more than just bones but bones are also decomposing very rapidly when it comes to all of the remains of different species and stuff like that these are actually very rare because you know on they're only remain from when it comes to skeletons like of dinosaurs we often see them either in you know in coal either in you know some stones and stuff like that because in those conditions there is no air no oxygen and in other conditions you know for instance if i were to die you know in the forest the forest may be wet there may be mud there and my remains will remain for much shorter period of time than if i were to die in the desert in the desert you know there is there is no there is no you know water there isn't much water and the conditions are for much longer preservation that's why we have some mummies from the deserts not only in africa but also i think even in peru mm. that you know are still with some material origins you know not only bones bare bones but also some like nails some like fragments of our skin and stuff like that but conditions that enable us to find a skeleton or thing millions of years ago are very rare actually there are mostly non-oxygen conditions like if you were 
you know, if a layer of, for instance, oil or something like that was above you after you died, then you would be still, there will be still able to found you. Mm -hmm. But many of the things decompose very rapidly because as I mentioned, there is mud, for instance, there are wet conditions, you know, there are like meltings even mm -hmm. uh, during the spring. So when it comes to any actually remain of any organism on earth, those remains that we have in museums and stuff like that are very rare examples. Yeah. And most of the others like haven't survived to our times. So it is the same with like modern world, as I mentioned. If now I go to the forest and die, you know, after tens of thousands of years, probably there wouldn't be much from me. No. But if I was a primitive person on Sahara, you know, within the hunter-gatherers like on the Kalahari desert or somewhere else, they would find me after thousands or even millions maybe of years later. And, you know, when it comes to technology, it often enables us to different conditions. And also when it comes to the technology itself, you know, the decomposition times of plastics is up to a thousand years, maybe a few hundred years. The decomposition time of metals is erosion in millimeters per year. So those things wouldn't last for millions of years if there yeah. aren't non-oxygen conditions. So if I was if I was buried with my watch under a layer of airtight, let's say, oil, they would maybe find after hundreds of years mm. the watch to some extent intact. You know, they will they will see that it is advanced technology. So we should but, look in those kinds of environments then. Yes, the, exactly. The but these are rare. Maybe, Again. maybe beneath the seas, because the sea was the sea level was much lower before the 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 for the megaliths and stuff like that but for technology you know in the seas there will be also a corrosion just yeah but maybe if it, as Titanic. you say in non non-oxygen environments we might find these so-called out-of-place artifacts there, there yes, have been yes. a few found i mean we have the schist disc in in, in egypt mm -hmm. for instance but should be some other it would be cool if somebody found on some, you know, out-of-place uh, artifact that is, is obviously very, very, very old. Yes, that's why most of those, you know, controversial, as you mentioned, out-of-place artifacts are, you know, some necklaces in coal or stuff, you know, always in coal or like hammer in some, some are, of course, hoaxes. I yeah. know there are plenty of hoaxes in that yeah. community, but I think so maybe, you know, genuine stuff, but as we mentioned, in coal, maybe in oil, and stuff like that and that's why they are so rare and you know we find only one because plenty of people oh you would find more if it was from an advanced civilization but you know we don't know what what were the conditions at that time as i mentioned what are because you mentioned that there may be like some coal or some oil but if it was let's say this airtight liar was ten thousand years after my death there still wouldn't be much from me you know it should be like immediately after that or shortly after the death of me or some civilization uh, if it was to survive that's why i mentioned this uh, it is a very good example of that mammoth on the Borisov river in siberia because it was immediately frozen yeah. it maybe it was a catastrophe or maybe it was such a harsh winter but this mammoth wasn't unfrozen until recently. It was yeah. constantly frozen. That's why it survived. But you know, if there was I this, died... there was this ice man Utsi. You remember Utsi in, yes, it is in also. northern Italy or southern Austria, and it was yes. had, that man had actually been deep frozen for I think five or eight thousand years, 
and it wasn't uh, the, the body wasn't wasn't uncovered and uh, wasn't yes uh, that's why we have the remains uh, of him but you know these are very rare conditions actually no. plenty of people even the skeptics which are so educated so intelligent superior intellectually than others because they are for science not for some pseudoscience even they you know don't have that imagination that those conditions are very rare. You know, when it comes even to the species that inhabited planet, we can correctly assume that 99.99% of all the species went extinct already because there were so many things happening, so many, as you mentioned, tectonic plates, cataclysm, even cataclysms that we know, like the, you know, the comets that strike and the dinosaurs were extinct, you know. Yeah. So there were plenty of things and plenty of conditions that were not good for preservation of any stuff. And as I mentioned, I start my book actually in the first chapter by showing the decomposition of modern materials. And as I mentioned, plastics, a hun few hundred years up to maybe a thousand years, metals, millimeters per year, so in million years with, let's say, humid, wet conditions, there would be nothing. Only glass, maybe 10,000, 20,000 years, but most of the stuff would decompose very rapidly. Only stone so lasts. Ex exactly, maybe that's why we have only stone and no uh, traces of those machines those technologies that were capable of cutting that precisely all of those blocks. But, you know, imagine that nowadays is a catac catastrophe and 20 or 50,000 years after someone wants to find us, there wouldn't be much from us. Hmm. Maybe, as I mentioned, there would be some oil layers, some non, or maybe freezing in some colder regions. But, you know, these are very rare examples. Hmm. Okay, let's go back to something you mentioned a little bit before here. Uh, I personally have no no problem with the Earth having had several, having experienced several cataclysms, or the humanity, humankind uh, having experienced several cataclysms, and the latest big one being maybe the one nine thousand six hundred years BC, as you've already talked about. But there is something mystical after that after the the younger dryas period it is a period which um, robert shock the geologist and geophysicist robert shock who's also been a guest on the show here he calls it the solar induced dark age and he says solar induced because he i mean he is of the opinion that mm -hmm. an unstable sun is the main was the main culprit behind that cataclysm and that's i mean that's an open question it could have been comets or anything but might might mm -hmm. be part of the answer he 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 leans towards that that theory so he calls it a, a solar induced dark age between the the latest cataclysm and the restart of civilization the year as you said 3100 BC or if it was a little bit earlier than that so we have a period of maybe 5 or 6000 years where where nothing much seems to have happened. Well, uh, apart from the, the Neolithic Revolution, but it didn't seem to happen very much uh, in other respects. And and may, maybe people were hiding underground, and Robert Schock is one of those who thinks that, that, that the, uh, the Derinkuyu caves in Turkey, for instance, are caves that people built because they had to hide from something dangerous on, on the ground. And 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 you also mentioned these these uh, the possible start of a of a yuga cycle three thousand one hundred BC and that's that's uh, an explanation why it's, things suddenly started happening. What what do you think happened, or or was it a mini cataclysm also at that time? What 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 happened in this this in between period there? 
Mm -hmm. It's a very interesting case. And actually this case was for me the most eye-opening that we may not know everything about our history. Because it's very suspicious. As I mentioned, 200,000 years of our existence, then 10,000 BC, Neolithic Revolution, then again, nothing happening up until 3000 BC. So we have two huge gaps during which something might have happened, actually. So... As you mentioned, the period of dark is, there are some myths, but there are plenty, of course, myths. Some myths are telling us that there was all night, and other myths are telling us that there was all day. So maybe a catastrophe led to some cosmic thing, maybe, you know, our orbit changed. Maybe, as as Robert Schock mentions, that there was a, like, post-apocalyptic night, like, after a, ato like, atomic winter, it is often called when it comes to, like, atomic bombs, that there is a period of at least few months or up to two, up to a few or even few years or few decades of constant darkness. It may be possible, because, for instance, there is a Zarathustrian legend of Yima, and actually, you know, Zarathustran, Zoroastrian religion is one of the oldest religions on our planet. You know, maybe Hinduism is older, Jainism, but you know, it is still a very old legend about Yima, who, just like Noah had to take animals onto his ark, so Yima needs to take seeds underground because there will be a huge winter spanning several years. So it is a description very, very similar to what you mentioned about this, you know, a few years period of winter after a cataclysm. And we know, for instance, after volcano eruptions that Maybe it wasn't global that the entire Earth was shrouded in darkness. It may be. There are those kinds of scenarios, but it may be that it that a, let's say, area was shrouded in darkness. We know that from, I think, recent, from 1800s, 1700s, that there were some, I think, on Indonesia, there were some eruptions of volcano yeah. that led to... But there's one called Toba and one called Krakatau, and there, there are several... Yes, but I... Volcano. But after I remember, then remember the name of the volcano. But I remember that after one of those volcanoes, or after two of those volcanoes, there were almost a year of darkness in a huge area, huge, like a few countries. So it may be, you know, that people living in such an area experience a total darkness like that. It may be, as Robert Shaw says, connected to solar flares because we know that solar flares or solar because th these are not only solar flares there are solar winds ejections of other kinds also but it may be you know we know exactly that there are cyclical cyclical things happening in our sun so it may be that it led to that but even when it comes to like i mentioned the cataclysm that ended the era of dinosaurs we know that this cataclysm led to a winter on plenty of you know places on earth and we know that it wasn't that the comet or something somebody it was i think planetoid or something like that it wasn't that it hit the earth and destroyed or killed the dinosaurs but it was the aftermath of that that winter and all of the conditions that led to the extinction of dinosaurs because when it comes to the darkness there is a period you know all of the vegetation all of the plants are not you know recovering so you know animals... big, big wildfires as well i mean we have after the yes during yes. the younger rise we have the extinction of the the megafauna not not all yes 75 percent of the megafauna exactly died out during that period so and it might have been big big fires 
all exactly fires but you know when it is like even a year of darkness there would be after a few months no plans because all of the herbivores would eat everything and the, they will just die you know then carnivores wouldn't have anything to eat and there are also a few myths from native americans that are telling us that people went actually underground for a few years and they had to eat bugs in order to survive. So it may be a parallel of that because, you know, there are, as I mentioned, no plants, no herbivores, no carnivores, everything, all of the food chain is collapsing. So you go underground and you eat what is there, you know, maybe bugs because there is actually no plants outside. So it may be that something happened like that and we don't know if it was a comet, if it was a solar flare or something like that, but something cataclysmic I think happened at the end of the Younger Dryas because as you mentioned, 75% of megafauna and I think the best and the stupidest idea of modern science is that humans overkilled them, ate yeah, all yeah, of it's them. A, it's a ridiculous theory. I actually yes. used to believe that, but I, I don't not anymore yes yeah, so that is as you mentioned ridiculous and also when it comes you know it was a sudden change because when it comes to the ending of last age of ice ages or starting of ice ages geological events like that often happen in spans of thousands if not tens of thousands of years like 500 years about because we don't know much because as i mentioned we cannot correctly pinpoint exact dates because it's geology it, it is all approximate but it was a few hundred years of constant meltings and i think that even if those meltings because some skeptics says that these meltings weren't that rapid but even hundreds of years of constant meltings can lead to, you know, sinking of some islands, sinking of some cities or even civilizations that are near coasts. Yeah, and, and it, they... it, probably, it probably comes in bursts as well. Yes, so exactly. At, at some points there is a big ice, I mean, block of ice from the from the uh, the ice sheet there that just melts quickly, probably creates some kind of mass flooding yeah, tsunami. area. Exactly, exactly. So, you know, skeptics, I think I the main problem of the skeptics is their closed mind and lack of imagination. Because even we can say, okay, if, even if it was like a few hundred years of a even centimeter per year, like the most conservative version is telling us. So still, in Poland, we are saying that if uh, the water levels, uh, the, the sea levels went up about five to ten centimeters like one third of the poland would be sunk so you can imagine that that constant sinking and it wasn't like constantly in the same pace maybe you know when it when it is uh, when the temperature rises we even nowadays see that some parts of the ice caps are falling down you know are being cut off because of all the water and are falling and can create tsunamis or some other floodings so i see that most of the skeptics do not have that imagination and they are close to any possibility they are too biased to even imagine such a scenario and you know I think that most of the cities, just as nowadays, were nearby some water reservoirs, either near seas, near lakes, or near the ocean. And, you know, if it was even a centimeter or two per year, it would completely sunk them in a single generation or during two generations. So I think that all of those myths and legends of the floods, of sinking, are actually 
can be pinpointed to that single era of the end of the last ice age because we have the most geological evidence for that age. We mentioned that something maybe happened like a mini a mini cataclysm before the first civilizations, as you mentioned with Robert Shaw, 3,100 about TSBC. And we mentioned that in Mahabharata, there is a mention that it was a flood. But, you know, we do not have that much of the evidence for that period of time. Most of the evidence comes from the end of the last ice age. It is a very well-documented age. Some geologists even say that it is the most documented age in geology. When it comes to all the research all over the world, it is all about the end of the last ice age. So I think it was all about that, but maybe some miniature event happened during the, let's say, before the first civilization. 3100 years BC. Maybe it was, as we mentioned, like a volcano is erupting and then there is a year of darkness. Maybe it was an event like that or of three, four years of darkness, but it wasn't that big just as the end of the last ice age. Yeah, yeah. Maybe we will know one day. In this field, we both, you and I, uh, we lean on uh, uh, independent pioneering researchers like. Charles Hapgood, Eric Van Deniken, Zechariah Sitchin, John Anthony West, Robert Schock, Chris Dunn. Uh, what else? Uh, who, who else? Graham, Graham, Graham Hancock, Randall Carlson, Robert Bouval, Andrew Collins, Brian Forrester, and, and lately also people like Ben Van Kirkwick and our mutual friend, Michael Leflem. Do, do you feel that these people have already found out the bulk of these ancient mysteries? and uh, or, or do you feel that by standing on, on the shoulders of these people, you will be able to dig up even more conclusive evidence eventually. I'm of the like middle ground opinion to appeal to the most amount of people that we are too arrogant in the mainstream to think that we know everything about their history. I am of the most opinion that it is a huge probability of those previous civilizations. But as I mentioned, I haven't found Atlantis. I don't know who built the Inca walls, but there is a huge possibility that someone before the cataclysm. And I'm of the opinion that there is plenty of things to be discovered and that it isn't the case that nowadays we know everything, almost. We say that, oh, in physics, in geology, in history, we know almost everything. It is too arrogant, in my opinion. And I think that it isn't the case that, you know, those researchers found already, I think that these are only the clues and this is the tip of the iceberg. Because even even uh, Zahi Hawass, who is a very, very conservative, <laughs> let's say, at, at least Egyptologist, he mentions that still the seven, according to him, 70% of all the chronological Egyptian history lies still buried and undiscovered. Yeah, so if right. he... If he says like that, so imagine maybe me, maybe we even found only five percent of. Well, if he says seventy, I, I I would say it's ninety-five. Exactly, 70. exactly. Maybe we only found five percent, and ninety-five still awaits discovery. And as I mentioned, less than two hundred years ago. We didn't know anything about Sumer or even other civilizations of ancient Mesopotamia. Right. So in 10, 20, 50 years, there may be much more. Maybe we may find found Atlantis. Maybe we may find even civilizations before Atlantis. There is a huge potential. Even within 200,000 years of humanity, there is a huge potential for several different 
to some extent, advanced civilizations. Yeah, and I wouldn't be surprised if it was Alexander Cheshki, which was the, one of those who, who did that, who, who is going to do that. Uh, so what are you more most passionate about in, in this respect? Do you want to dig more deeply into these ancient texts and documents, or, or are you dreaming of going out in the field, climbing pyramids and, and, and all that stuff? I... I love the most ancient texts, and it is like, as I mentioned at the beginning, that intuitive rediscovering, re-remembering of stuff, because sometimes when I read, for instance, the Hermetica, the original Hermetica from ancient times and stuff like that, you know, I when you read this text, you know, there are mostly interpretations of scholars who are only scholarly looking at it from a perspective, mostly of materialism, not believing in that stuff, but... I love ancient texts the most because by connecting all of those dots the, and all of the things, all of the information that I've read throughout the years, you know, I can tell such, I can show such a holistic picture of everything and such golden, gold wisdom and knowledge that I love the most ancient texts. But of course, I want also to explore the physical remains of all of that stuff. But, you know, I love the ancient texts because you read them from different eras, from different different areas of the world. And I actually came after reading them even separately to similar conclusions. Yeah, it is all the same. It points not only to the distant past, as we mentioned, but also I'm interested in philosophical conceptions like the universe, consciousness, mind of God and stuff like that. And it seems that most of these most ancient texts, not of the later origins, are telling us a similar story and showing us a coherent picture. So I'm also one of my biggest projects is actually more of metaphysical, philosophical nature than only lost civilizations and stuff like that. This was, I think, just a beginning in my, let's say, research, because yeah. as I mentioned, I started, let's say, as a materialist, but it started to, you know, I started accumulating that knowledge and it started leading me to a more holistic picture of the entire universe, not only, you know, focusing on archaeology and history. So I will also research a lot like stuff like consciousness. Sounds, sounds wonderful. Yeah. I mean, it, it all goes together, of course. Yes. You, you mentioned at some um, uh, in, in the pre-interview form here that at some point you started having prophetic dreams. Would you mind sharing a little bit about Yes. Yes, I haven't mentioned that uh, during my story because actually it, it is a very interesting story because I started as I mentioned just as I just mentioned as a as an atheist materialist because you know there was a tra religious tradition Christ Christian tradition in Poland but I wasn't caring that much. I was more of an agnostic let's say position. I didn't know if those spiritual stuff existed but it was parallel. Like during those years of my middle high school, between 14 and 16 years of age, it was parallel. One was like the, let's say, masculine intellectual research of history, of civilization, science. And the other was like the feminine, like inner exploration, the spirituality. And at the same time that I started researching during my middle high school, all of that history, I started Pearl having prophetic dreams and stuff like that. And actually it, the prophetic dreams 
led to me opening to the idea of spirituality. And it's a very interesting story because most of the people are in reverse that, you know, it, when it comes to atheists, for instance, many of them used to be religious, spiritual, and they try to debunk any metaphysical spiritual concepts because they be once believed in it. And they, they are, you know, superior rationally and they don't believe it anymore. So actually my story is in reverse, that I started as a, let's say, skeptic, materialist, atheist, and I started exploring things. It is not about, in my case, about the belief in spiritual God and stuff like that, but it is more about experiencing it, like knowledge, like gnosis. So I started having prophetic dreams and they kick-started my spiritual journey at the same time. And I mentioned this interesting, like the masculine development this research let's say this fighting for truth for history and at the same time this feminine stuff of the interior of you know spirituality soul consciousness prophetic dreams and these dreams you know when it comes to prophetic dreams it is in my case the most interesting that they are not that relevant because those prophetic dreams are often so minor details that are unnecessary are completely you know i don't care about them like a thing that will happen when i walk somewhere that is you know beyond a coincidence and it is of no great because when it comes to prophetic dreams we always think of some great visions like yeah. apocalyptic visions or visions of the future or great inventions but there are maybe like prophetic dreams like that. Maybe I experienced a few of them, but most of the prophetic dreams are about minor day-to-day -day stuff that is beyond coincidence. And it shows you that, you know, in the mon mundane stuff, everywhere there is like sacredness everywhere. Everything is interconnected and stuff like that. Yeah. And I mean, if, if you say they don't matter, but they do matter to you. Because yes. You, you obviously can see that this was a prophetic dream, this was a, a, a dream what was going to happen in the future. And it's like it's like little hints from the universe, if, if you will. It's like Some the universe extent, tap, yes. tapping you on the on the shoulder, look, look, this is actually real. Because I mean, if it were to be big things, maybe you wouldn't be able to handle it, or none of us would be able to handle it because it's- Or you will be too much egoic about it. Egoic you know? about it, or you, you can't handle- Boost your ego. You life on this planet, so it would be not not very, beneficial to you mm -hmm. and but, to humanity you know yeah. yes i think like that and i think it is similar to the mention at the beginning of that in all of that hurry and in all of this modern living we need to you know take a step back you know sit right now down here and just experience and all of the unconscious things will happen yes. and i think the same is with the prophetic dreams they are like also the message from the universe that wait a minute, be here now. You know, in those Monday th mundane things, you will find the most exceptional and the best life. You know, just see it because exactly. often those, let's say, those like symbols or things from the dreams that I experienced before were in a moment that I was in a hurry and in something like that. And I think it is also a message that be here now and in the mundane find things. You you also mentioned that you you want to see an expansion in the human consciousness collectively i guess or individually as well can you explain what you what you mean by that yes as i mentioned i'm against the materialistic dogma that's why i i like science i love science i'm not anti scientific but 
one of the assumptions of science, you know, basic premises is that everything is matter and its interactions. And I don't agree with that. You know, it's like you go explore and you assume that there will be only uh, only brown trees and there won't be white trees. You know what I mean? Or you are just getting yourself in a bubble, in a prison, and not opening to a bigger potential. And I think that this is a huge mind paradigm shift that we should explore everything freely. And whether, whenever, wherever the truth may lead us. Because as I mentioned, this is the basic premise of science and science is going still with this baggage and this actually limiting itself. And nowadays with all of the misinformation, pseudoscience and stuff like that, it seems like the science is the only way of gathering knowledge. You know, the science has a monopoly. I don't know if it you can talk in Polish. It is like you have monopoly over yeah, monopoly. Yeah. Uh, exactly, monopoly over knowledge, and everyone outside the scientific community is like a fraud or like pseudoscientist and stuff like that. And I think that it is a bad thing because it's like during the Middle Ages. The, for instance, Christianity had the monopoly over science and everything else was a heresy. So we are in a similar situation and I think that we need to, you know, explore more and expand the consciousness of people that there is more than just matter and that we shouldn't limit ourselves. That's why I'm also working on things like new science and I'm really into the philosophy of science because I see things like this assumption that are... Uh, very negative to humanity and may lead us to, as we mentioned in Kali Yuga, imprisonment of humanity into material beings. And actually, when it comes to this matter, because th that's what I mean mostly when it comes to this consciousness shift, that we should go away from this material, also from the illusion of logic. Because, you know, not every logical assumption, not every logical, totally, totally rational argument is correct. You know, we are sometimes in the prison of the mind of our own basic assumptions like the materialism and science. And I think that we should change that, that, that there may be much more. I don't say, I don't force that Atlantis was real. I say that there is much more to our history and we should be open because we don't know what we will find in a few years. And the same with the matter, science, consciousness, spirituality. So this is what I meant. And I think that we have too much from this Kali Yuga materialistic age that is still prevailing in our society nowadays and that it is time to, you know, cut that off and finish it. And I also think that there may be a bigger conspiracy involving the modern Satanism, which is more and more exposed in you know modern times more and more satanic stuff is happening on a global level in media you know in public things and it is connected to satan because satan was so you know in the basic story you know it is not maybe canonical but in the basic story satan was the best of the angels that God created. And he was so arrogant that he wanted to be better than God. So he, according to some stories, he created the matter, the material world. And, you know, I think that 
this imprisonment in material reality, like in modern scientific materialism and atheism, may lead to a global control of humanity because it's easier to control someone behaving like an animal than someone who is like spiritual or someone who is just, you know, open-minded, intellectual, rational. And I think that modern world, including those Satanists, wants us to degrade humanity from our higher levels up to the levels of animals because we have those animals' instincts within us. And I think that they want to use that for their advantage. And even Hermeticism were telling us that we have higher we have higher consciousness and lower consciousness and that many people are like pigs. Even I think in Kibalion, there is a mention that materialists are like pigs or like animals because they only focus on matter. And the same was actually in Plato's story of Atlantis. The Atlantis fell because people were starting to be like animals. Plato in his Timaeus and Critus is telling us that people starting to be more animal-like than human-like, than rational-like, than intellectual-like. And because of that, the Atlantis fell. So we may be in a similar situation at the peak of our, let's say, society, like in those, we mentioned this, all the exponential growth, when we have both sides, we have intellectual expansion, but we also have those primitive things that are, let's say, recommended to people mm -hmm. that you should, you know, go to all of the pleasures and all of that stuff. So this is what very I paradoxical. Meant. It's so it all goes on at the same time. It's very paradoxical. It's a very yes. complex <laughs> world we're living in. We have these the highest of the high and the lowest of the low at the same time. Yes, it's fascinating. It's, as you say, it's very difficult to, to to control humans who are in their true spirituality and have access to all the capabilities that are there innately. That we have forgotten about if if you're i mean people who have that who know that they are that they can do anything you can't control those people so that's i mean i, I guess people who are in, in charge who are as you say maybe sat satanic i don't know if that's the proper word to use but they're probably a bit afraid that that's going to happen that such a shift mm -hmm. is going to happen because then yes exactly this whole this whole uh, matrix will will just fall apart mm -hmm. yes exactly that's why they want to still enslave us in the material world. That's why I'm against materialism in science and in overall lives of humanity. Couldn't agree more. Very wise, fantastic. So, Alexander Cheskevich, where can people go now to find out more about you and your work, your book? Now? Yes, I have an English website, cheskevichglobal.com, and my book, Deja Vu, has everything already been, is on most Amazons, like in US, in UK, in Europe, in Australia, so you can find by Deja Vu, has everything already been, and you can find me on the internet just by typing my name, copying and pasting my name and surname. Yeah, I think most people Facebook. would have to copy paste because... Yes, exactly. Family. Yes, exactly. That was hard for me because once I was in a radio show that had like 3 million views, but because it was only in radio, no one could, you know, check me out later because, you know, it was in US, so it was hard for me, but so... So the best thing is to copy-paste. I'm on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and of course, my book is on Amazon. My friend, Alexander, you're a beacon for knowledge-thirsty seekers out there. So thank you for being a guest on the show, and, and keep up the good work. Thank you for having me on.